Uh, let's say the prayer, which is the prayer of the first hour. So if anyone has their, uh, their book of hours or their orologion, follow along. So, so let's start. O Christ, the true light, who enlightenest and sanctifiest every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may see the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the doing of thy commandment to the intercessions of thy most holy and most pure mother and of all thy saints. Amen. Okay. So we are starting a new chapter in our readings in the, uh, of St. Nectarios' writings. Uh, and this one is on exercise. And I want to say one thing first about the, uh, the title on exercise. The Greek word is askesis. Uh, and askesis is the same word in Greek for physical exercise and spiritual exercise. So St. Nectarios is going to uh, talk about, it's going to take advantage of that duality throughout the essay, but it may not be apparent to us in English um, because we associate exercise, the word exercise, with physical exercise, athleticism, right, uh, with lifting weights or whatever, or running. And we associate the word asceticism with spiritual exercises, right, which are, of course, all involve humility, self-denial, uh, and watchfulness, and uh, to the extent that um, we're being also watchful with our food when we fast, we're also being watchful with our thoughts, right? This is, uh, the fasting is um, the fruit of repentance, uh, but it's also the, uh, a, a way of strengthening our watchfulness, our prosochi the guarding of our heart. This is the point of fasting. And we are approaching the Feast of the Cross, which is one of the few feasts of the church when we actually fast strictly on that day. Uh, on the old calendar, it is this coming Sunday. And it's a strict fast, normally, if the, when the feast falls in the middle of the week, from Monday to Friday. When the feast falls on the weekend, the church allows oil the church allows, in other words, the lysis of the fast. Um, sorry. The church allows us to, to um, break the fast in a minor way. So when we're fasting from, when we're fasting on a Saturday or a Sunday, days when we typically don't fast, um, it's not a strict fast but it's, it's a fast that is broken in a small way with a little bit of oil, olive oil. That's enough to conform with canon law, but it's also uh, consonant with the spiritual struggle that we uh, are called to undertake uh, either in preparation for a feast or for communion or um, in, in, in general. Uh, and on this Sunday, in preparation for uh, the uh, exaltation of the cross, on Sunday we're actually fasting, but we're eating oil. But our Metropolitan, Metropolitan Demetrios, has asked all of us in uh, his flock in this metropolis uh, to fast as well in preparation, starting from Wednesday. 
Um, and it's an appropriate response, I think, very appropriate request um, by, from the Metropolitan, given what's happening in the world today, given, given what's happening in this, in this country today, the confusion, the mass confusion that exists, the only antidote to that is um, repentance. And the Holy Fathers talk about the physical manifestation of repentance, which is fasting. St. Nicodemus talks about add fasting to fasting. In other words, add voluntary fasting to the fasting that the church has already instituted, Wednesdays and Fridays, for example, uh, to manifest your repentance. Um, and so St. Ectarios, getting back to the essay, it's on exercise, but it could also be on asceticism, right? The word itself has both meanings in Greek, askesis. Um, and I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the context and jump into the middle of the text before I talk about the beginning. So it says that this was delivered on the 21st of August in 1893 in the city of Kimi, on the island of Evia. Evia is the second largest island in Greece. Um, and it is a speech given at the uh, inauguration of, at the opening of an exercise club. An exercise club in Kimi. Um, two things about that. First, the exercise club is not what we think of, a, of an exercise club today, a workout club. Right, this would have been a little bit more formal. Probably would have been, not probably, certainly would have been made up only of men. He only talks about young men here. Would have been regimented, um, and most likely the types of exercise that they would have ex that they would have undertaken would have been a military sort style sort of training. Young men exercising together in the open air, so on and so forth. It 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 ought, it ought to be noted that. Um, only three years later, 1896, was the uh, inauguration of the Olympic Games, right? It started in Athens. Um, and, and so um, in the years, in the year and a half or two or, or, two or three years before that event, uh, we see people in Greece kind of getting excited about this particular event. Um, and so the people in Kimi, established an exercise club for their young men. Uh, but what does a bishop have to do with exercise clubs? Why is the bishop involved here? And St. Nicodius was not the bishop of Evia. He was, he was already a bishop at the time, but he was a bishop without a see. Remember many weeks ago, we talked about uh, his life a little bit, how he was, um, had become a bishop in the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Um, he didn't have, he was a titular metropolitan in Alexandria, meaning that he only had a title. He was uh, an assistant to the patriarch of Alexandria. And then, of course, because of envy, he was expelled from the patriarchate of Alexandria, in particular because he, he clashed with the, the monks of the monastery of St. Catherine's in Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, other clergymen in Cairo. Um, and he uh, took refuge in Greece. He found refuge, rather, in Greece and asked the 
Holy Synod of Greece, of the Church of Greece, which is autocephalous, right? So it's, it wasn't part of any of the other patriarchates, um, for uh, an assignment, either a diocese that he could become the metropolitan of. And the people in Evia really wanted him for their diocese. They wanted him to become the metropolitan of Chalkida. Uh, it didn't happen. It wasn't God's will. Uh, uh, or some kind of other assignment. And so until they could find a more important assignment for him, they, uh, they assigned him to being an itinerant preacher, an Ierokirix, who would uh, walk, travel from village to village and town to town and preach the word of God. And so the people in Kimi had actually become attached to him because he preached frequently in, in the town of Kimi. And uh, he was invited back to the town when the town opened its first athletic club, its first exercise club. Um, but what does the church have to do with this? I think it's really interesting because you see St. Nectarios in the middle of society. We're accustomed to the idea of separation of church and state, which has been deformed lately in our, in our society in the last 50 years or so. It's been deformed to the idea that there's a separation between someone's religious life, which is private, and, their, uh, and pu the public life of the nation, right? Uh, that wasn't the original idea. The original idea was merely that in the United States, at least in the United States, um, the federal government would not support a national church. The United States Constitution, though, allows for states to support churches, but not for the federal government. Eventually, that principle was extended down to the states as well. That's the only that was the only rationale, or the, only the original purpose, rather, for the separation of church and state in the United States. But that principle has been abused and distorted to where in our world today, in our society, uh, religion is purely a private affair. Uh, to the extent that people don't want to talk about religion, or many people don't want to talk about religion in public. Uh, and now we're in the election cycle, right? The, we're only a few weeks away from a presidential election and <laughs> a vacancy on the Supreme Court and most likely the candidate that uh, the president of the United States will put forward for that vacancy is a practicing Roman Catholic. And so we're going to get a whole firestorm of, of controversies now about the separation of church and state and to what extent... Um, people that have public office are allowed to be religious. Um, so this is what's going on in our society right now. But St. Nectarius lived in a different time and in a different society and had a completely different conception of things. The church cares for all of man. In other words, for the entire human being. And St. Nectarius is uh, his consistent method in all these essays about education has been to look at the, uh, at the question of education from an anthropological perspective. The anthropology is the doctrine on man, doctrine on human nature. And he, he, he approaches all these topics from the perspective of the soul and the body and the faculties of the mind, the faculties of the soul. Um, 
and how man is created in the image of God, right? So it's an anthropological, from an orthodox anthropological perspective. And so from an orthodox anthropological perspective, human beings are um, soul and body, right? They're spiritual, they're social, they're material. We are spiritual, social, material, religious, and Ecclesiastes likes to list these qualities. Uh, and so the church doesn't just care for one part of the human being. The church doesn't just look after spiritual matters and forget the rest, because that would not be Christian love, charity, caritas, agapi. Right? Agapi is all encompassing. Uh, Christian charity is expansive and embraces the whole of man. The church's love for man is for the whole being, for every aspect, for the body, for the soul, for the social part, right? the intellectual part, the mind, the heart, the physical health. And so if that's true, it's also concerned about we just said it, the, the, the social and the political aspects of man, because the political comes out of the social and the social is part of our nature, right? Social means we live in society, in association, in Greek, in kinonia, which means in communion with other people, the people around us, the people that God has put us amongst, right? That we have to understand is part of divine providence. It's part of the mystery of divine providence, the people that we meet, the people that we, especially the people that were, the community that we're born into, right? That all that is, is provided, arranged by God for our particular salvation. And so for our particular salvation, he made us social. Uh, human society, some theologians have also made the analogy between human society and the, the life of the Holy Trinity. And, and, and we have to be careful there. We don't want to project human qualities onto God, but divine qualities onto human beings, right? So um, St. Gregory Palamas, when he, when he, what he does is he, he doesn't start by saying human beings are this way, thus God must be like that. He does it the other way around. We know that God is three, and we know that God is three and one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who um, share in one essence and one energy, one activity, right? And who um, uh, the, the, the Father resides in the Son, and, is man and the Holy Spirit is manifested in the Son, right? And the Son resides in the Father, and the, the way that they, they manifest each other. Um, of course, all that is revealed in Scripture, and it's revealed um, by the mouth of God himself, by the word of God himself. But that is the archetype. And we are the dim copy. We are the imperfect copy. Right? Because, um, first of all, God is eternal and we're finite. He's infinite and we're finite. We're, he's, he's eternal and we're mortal. Uh, he's uncreated. We're created. We're fallen also. So there's... There's the, the, the gap between God and human beings that's, that comes out of the fact that God has always existed and we began in time and we change over time. And also the fact that we're fallen. So that's why I said we're dim copies. We're very, 
and but of course the 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 spiritual um life of the orthodox church is exactly the process by which human beings can uh, reveal more of the divine image to the point where they can acquire even the divine likeness inwardly and and breathe and live the same life as god those are the saints um so saint nectarios uh was amongst his people he he was not um embarrassed of his calling he was not embarrassed of his rasho his the fact that he was a priest um he was not also it works the other way too he wasn't embarrassed to uh, um walk amongst common people right and there's a there's a famous picture that I didn't think of finding, but it's online. If you see, it's Saint Nectarios who's taken. I don't know if Maria, you want to search it. Um, it he he's taking a a picture with the people in the village, probably in Evia, if not in Evia, then across the other side of the the Voikos Kolpos on mainland Greece. And there are priests standing next to him. There's the the village teacher who's very strict. And then there are people in the background goofing off. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the musicians have their, have their instruments in their mouth and they're pretending to play. And the bishop is just standing there very calmly, very serene, even keeled, right? Where, where all these various personalities are kind of bouncing off of each other. They're all kind of eccentric in their own way. He's not embarrassed by that. Because those are real people, and God sent him to those people in order to help those people find their salvation in the way that God made them. Because orthodoxy is not about the obliteration of individuality. It's not about the, obliter uh, the, the obliteration right, of, of our characteristics and making us somehow homogeneous uh, so that we all have the same personality and we all speak in the same way. Right? Those are the elements of a cult. Right? Uh, the, the, the Orthodox Church, which is the, the um, treasure, treasury, the treasury of, you found it, Maria. I said, put it on, uh, on chat, um, a link so people can see it. The church is the tamiukos, the, the treasury of divine grace. God's uncreated energy, his grace, his eternal grace, um, pours through the church into the human race. And God created each one of us as unique and unrepeatable individuals. And when the grace of God pours into us, we become more distinct. Our personality becomes more pronounced. We become more vividly human, actually. So the church isn't about making everyone act in the same way and conforming, right? That, that is the, again, ideologies and cults do that. Uh, it makes, they make everyone speak in the same way and say the same things, always think the same stuff, right? But the church is the opposite of all of that. Um, and so St. Nectarius wasn't embarrassed by these eccentric people, some of whom probably were kind of off, Right? <laughs> You all know individuals like that, right? But he came down to them, to their level, in order to raise them up 
in order to enlighten them and to raise their minds. And what he says in this essay is actually very profound. He also, if we go, if we jump to the middle, where he talks about his purpose here, um, section five on page 48, he says, we have come together to celebrate the renewal of such a balanced training of the powers of the soul and body begun anew today by the establishment of this newly formed exercise club for young people. Its establishment is evidence of an awareness of the necessity of a balanced and parallel cultivation of the powers of the soul and the body. Uh, further down, he talks about um, the purpose of um, of the gathering again. Um, see um there's one where he talks about oh on the next page on page 49 the establishment of this club it's i think it's the same paragraph the establishment of this club is a good omen he doesn't mean that literally he doesn't believe in omens it's just a matter of speaking he's borrowing phrases from uh, ancient greek um sayings um, the establishment of this club is a good omen, foretelling excellent things for Kimi, which is now destined to bring forth noble and good men. Such men will prove beneficial to the city, society, and the homeland. Our ancient ancestors became noble and good men through measured bodily exercise and the parallel development of the soul's powers. So he's also concerned, we, we noted this last time, about the polity, the people and the polity, and thus also the politics, right? Because the high, this is the highest expression of politics, is the production of noble, the, um, the bringing forth of noble and good men. That's the purpose of society, right? The purpose of society is not necessarily, um, perhaps not at all, you know, economic growth. This is what we hear from politicians all the time. Economic growth, and that's the only thing that matters. That's the only measure. Everything's been subordinated to that. Um, education has been subordinated to that. Right? The only programs that are actually worth funding are the programs that contribute to economic growth. Um, but it's the, the bringing forth of noble and good men, and of course, noble and good women, all human beings. But in particular, the way in the society that St. Nectarius lives, that noble and good men who were going to lead the state, who were going to lead the church. Then at the end, um, on page 52, he talks about um, the club's aims to raise up strong men who will uphold the customs of the homeland. And he says, the lack of such clubs is an indication of a lack of a sense of the necessity and efficacy, uh, the lack of a sense of their necessity and e efficacy, um, and a sign of imperfect development. The lack of such clubs means that young men are deprived of all the aforesaid blessings of exercise, just as occurs when one leaves the, behind a, a flowing, beautiful spring. They are left to be carried away by the resultant will, evils of weakness and illness, right? Um, and so the, the, the decline of the nation 
is some the spiritual, but also the physical decline of the nation. It's something that St. Nectarios is actively working against. Right? All the saints have done this in every era. Right? What is the decline of a nation? The decline of a nation is the decline in virtue. Right? What is the decline? What, what is degeneracy caused by? There, there is such a thing as degeneracy. Today we're accustomed again to thinking that because we're against racism, there's no such thing as a degenerate. But there is. Degenerates. Degeneration is caused by sin. Corruption. Right? Degeneration is just another word for corruption. And so anyone can become a degenerate if they're corrupted by sin because they're living at a level that's below their nature. Right? Noble nations can become degenerate very quickly. Um, and of course, nations that in the past have been degenerate can turn around very quickly through repentance. Right? So the, it works both ways. And so for the first point I wanted to make about the text is St. Nectarios' care for his society. He's not... He, and there were never such saints who just cut themselves off completely from the world and never cared for the world. Even St. Arsenios, who fled man all the time, right? He heard a voice and it said, if you want to save yourself, flee from men from other human beings so he would even turn away empresses and patriarchs wouldn't talk to them um, but Saint Arsenios was not a misanthrope misanthrope right Saint Arsenios and all the ascetic saints who went to the desert were in communion with God and through their communion with God sanctified the world around them and were intercessors for their brethren they all lived in society. Even if the society was, even if they had a, a different relationship with society, they, they, they stayed in the wilderness, outside of the world. But of course, the saints who were bishops in particular, and priests, and, uh, but the, those two ranks in particular of the clergy had a particular responsibility for their flocks. Uh, and, and so we see St. Nectarios this coming down in order to raise everyone up. Um, the second point in this essay is St. Nectarios's um, anthropological method, right? Uh, on page 46, he says, everyone knows about the existent union between soul and body and the influence these two have on one another on account of their referring back to one single person to one single perceptive faculty of a single material spiritual being, that is man, who perceives each and every single movement in their soul or body as the movement of one lone being, which expresses itself through the word I. Right? This is um, a very important statement because many people are confused about what human beings are. What is the relationship between the body and the soul? So many people don't even understand, won't acknowledge the existence of the soul. <clears throat> These are the materialists, right? And most, uh, at least people on the mass media today, the way they speak, they're materialists. Uh, there's, there's 
nothing that refers to anything beyond the material. Uh, on the other extreme are uh, what we might call them Gnostics or spiritualists, although the word spiritualist with a capital S means something slightly different. Um, but they only believe in the spirit, in the soul. Uh, such people were people like Plato, who thought that the, the ancient Greek philosopher, who thought that the body was a, a prison for the soul, um, but also many of the Far Eastern uh, philosophers, um, such as the, uh, the Hindus and the Buddhists, right, who believe that, the Buddhists in particular, believe that the body is an illusion. It's part of an, an illusory experience. It's not real. They even believe that the, the, the unique personality of each human being is not real. This is why nirvana is kind of the ascent to an, uh, a personless state. You lose your personhood to this greater reality. Um, so those are the two extremes. But the truth is in the middle. The truth is that human beings are both soul and body. Right? The human being is not a body. The human being is not a soul. But the human being is the union of a soul and a body, of the soul and the body. Right? The soul is higher than the body. Right? It's more excellent than the body. It is the seat of our consciousness, of our mind. Right? Um, and the soul, of course, lives after it's created at the moment of conception, the soul lives forever after that and never dies, never ceases to exist. The death of the soul is sin. The body, however, goes through the entire life cycle and because of our fall is mortal and dies and decays uh, and returns to the earth. Right? Um, the, the body it has many characteristics that it shares with irrational animals, right? The body is, um, makes us relative, relatives of the irrational animals. Our soul makes us relatives to the, relates us to the, to the angels. Right? So we partake of both worlds. This is why um, the Holy Father said that the human being is a macrocosm of the microcosm. Uh, that is a large summary, right, of the universe. Because we bring together um, the material and the spiritual and united in one. And for the, for the Holy Fathers, human beings are greater than the physical universe. Even though the physical universe physically is bigger than each human being, it's a universe that contains billions of other superior universes human beings um and, and the reason why we're superior to the physical universe is because we're rational right we're uh, and we unite the spiritual and the and the material um and so saint Nectario starts there makes that his starting point and he says that the two have a mutual influence there's a mutual influence between the soul and the body, the body and the soul, right? What affects the soul affects the body. What affects the body affects the soul. 
Um, and so in talking about exercise, he says that our exercise should apply to both aspects. It should be balanced. It should apply to both aspects of the human being. When we're exercising, we should be exercising our soul in asceticism. And when we're exercising, we should be exercising our body in moderation. Right? Um, we shouldn't fall on, on page 47. He says, although great care and concern is required in order to cultivate these, these two, the soul and the body, one should not fall into extremes and the care for the body of he who exercises ought to be especially measured. On the other hand, according to Aristotle, the extreme cultivation of the soul undermines the body through excessive strain, while on the other hand, the extreme cultivation of the body undermines the soul through unceasing exertion. The second is the greater evil, on account of which amounting to, uh, yeah, on account of it amounting to the corruption of what is more excellent. So we should not fall to the extremes. Um, the one extreme is cultivating the soul at the expense of the body, and the other is cultivating the body at the expense of the soul. Right? So Cultivating the body at the expense of the soul perhaps is something that we can understand because our, we live in an entire society, in, in a society in which there's an entire industry that's focused on that, right? The whole exercise industry, you turn every corner or you go through any sort of plaza of any suburban area in North America and you'll find some kind of exercise center, although they've been closed for a while now this year. Um, they're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And there are people that get up really early in the morning, two o'clock in the morning with the monks. They get up at the same time as the monks and they go and do their physical exercises continuously. No pain, no gain, right? On the treadmill, lifting weights, um, doing all these different, and, and these exercises are getting more and more extreme uh, at a time. Military style exercises are now in the vogue, right? Um, people lifting logs and running them for, for miles or, or running with weights, rocks on their backs or whatever. There's another one where, um, I forgot the exact name, where uh, it's high impact. Um, and why are these people exercising? Uh, for two reasons, primarily. One is because they don't believe in the immortality of the, of, uh, of the soul. And so they're trying to beat death, stave off death. It's, a part, it's about our mortality. You feel our mortality, especially when you get older. Uh, and you want to push it back. You, this is the whole quest, the whole quest for youth. The cult of youth is connected to this fear of mortality, fear of death. And the other, because the fear of death, everyone, of course, naturally fears death, right? Even the saints, even our Lord in his humanity, his humanity stepped, you know, was, was fearful of death. That's why he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
if it's possible, take this cup away from me. But then he conformed his will to the divine will and said, but let thy will be done, right? Speaking to his father. Um, so that's a natural fear because obviously, as we know, um, human beings were not created to die. We die only because of, a, of our fall, because of the dysfunction in our soul and our body that we inherited from our ancestors that eventually leads to biological death. Um, and, but Christians have a hope, right? We, we believe, in the, believe in Christ's resurrection, that we've participated in his death and his resurrection through our baptism. And thus we have the hope, a hope for the life, for the eternal life, right? So we live with that hope. And so that takes away from the fear of death to the extent that because now we don't fear death, we can live free of sin if we have a strong enough will. Um, but those who are not Christians, I don't have this hope, and so they have to do something. The other part of this has to do with lust. Right? A lot of people are out there working out because they want to have attractive bodies in order, I mean, what does it mean to have an attractive body? Uh, to talk about having an attractive body, in other words. It means to tempt other people, right? That doesn't mean that, obviously, that obviously that doesn't mean that the church is against physical human beauty. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the, the purpose, the mentality that, that is, is uh, you know, that, that's applied to this question, applied to physical exercise, for many people, it has to do with having an attractive body that is a provocative body that is pro uh, provoking others people, other people's passions. Um, and so that's the one extreme. Exercise purely for the body. The soul is damaged by that. The soul is starved. In the first case, when it's just for uh, the, the, the flight from death, and the soul is, is wounded in other ways, in the second case, when, it's for the per when exercise is done for the purpose of lust. On the other hand, there's the other extreme. The other extreme is the, um, the extreme of the fakir, the extreme of the, the desert monk that is obsessed with mortifying the body, mortifying the flesh. Entire heresies were generated out of this. First of all, um, we have ancient Greek philosophers. The ancient Greek philosopher Plotinus the first word, his, the first sentence in his biography written by Porphyry, um, a Neoplatonist philosopher who lived about 100 years after him. Porphyry says, Plotinus was a man who was ashamed to have a body. Ashamed to have a body. Right? And, um, and so you have these philosophers that want to transcend the body. They want to annihilate. And then you have Christian monks in the desert who are, who are deceived by demons into desiring to, to mortify their flesh as if it's something evil. And then you have the Monophysites who, is a, who are heretics. 
many of whom could not accept that our Lord had an active human nature. Because they said, well, if I'm in the desert trying to mortify my human flesh and my human nature, how can our Lord have an active human nature? Right? But this is delusion. Because the purpose of spiritual asceticism is not to mortify the flesh. Uh, not, to, not to completely destroy um, the, your body or to completely destroy the lower parts of your soul, that is the desiring part and the emotional part of your soul. Indeed, if you destroy, mortify the desires, your capacity to feel any desire, you can't love at all. You can't even love God. Right? But the purpose is to put to death the mind of the flesh, the carnal mind the passions, and to replace the passions with virtues. So that if the saints fasted, they weren't fasting because they were trying to destroy their bodies, but they were fasting in order to tame their passions. And they didn't, they didn't uh, uh, fast and undertake spiritual exercises in order to be incapable of desiring anything or to be incapable of feeling any emotion, to be, to be completely, um, uh, you know, impassable. They were fasting and, and uh, uh, being watchful inwardly in order to defeat their passions and to acquire their virtues because the, the desiring faculty has a virtue as well as a myriad of passions that can infect it. But there's grace also, and the grace that applies to the desiring part of our soul is the grace of agape, of love. And the grace that applies to the emotional part of our soul is the grace of hope. And the grace that applies to our mind is the grace of faith. Right? The charisma. These are charismata of, of deep faith. In the same way that the mind has passions, and we're not, no one has ever argued to mortify the mind, except maybe some Buddhists. Uh, in the, in the Himalayas. But no one has talked about mortifying the mind. Why? Because with the mind, it's clear, right? We have to defeat the passions of the mind. We have to be cured of our passions and then ascend to the virtues and to the grace that God pours into us, right? And the faith that's given to the mind. It's, the same thing is true of the other parts of the soul and the same thing is true of the body. Notice that what do the saints leave behind? Their greatest gift to humanity after they die are their bodies, right? The entire Orthodox liturgy it's physical aspects. The parts that the, that the Protestants actually object to have to do with the physicality of the liturgy. And that's for the sake of our body as well as our soul. When we kiss icons, we smell incense, we touch, we hear, we taste. With the taste, of course, Holy Communion, it's everything. But it's significant that Holy Communion is physical. Because, because you would think, well, couldn't God just send his grace immaterially? And of course he does. But the greatest grace is conveyed through his body, his physical body, because we are made as physical beings. And all of us, the entirety of man is good. Um, and so God communes in the unique way that he created us. He communes with us in that way, through all of the channels, through, on the, all the levels that he's created us. Um, and so St. Nectarios, and, and I don't want to go much longer here with the discussion of the content. Maybe we could turn it around in, about, in a few minutes and, that, and people can ask questions or make points. Um, 
throughout the entire rest of the essay, or for most of the rest of the essay, he talks about this balance on page 48. He says, moderation and exercise is required in order to maintain prudence, that is a harmonic balance in the development of the powers of soul and body, so that the former may rule over the body and the latter may readily fulfill the commands it is given. That's the purpose of physical health, right? The, the purpose of spiritual psychological health, right, or perhaps the criterion of spiritual psychological health, is when the um, the souls the power uh, the powers of the soul are fully formed and the soul rules over the body. And and the purpose of physical health is for the body to fulfill the commands given to it by the soul. Right, and so. And he's completely consistent here because in other places he talks about the reason why we need to be physically fit. Not for the purpose of athletic competition. Professional athletic competition. This, this had just started in the world. Professional athletic competition. People competing in sports as, uh, and, and taking it really seriously. Athleticism has to be subordinate to something. And he's defining here for, for us what it's subordinate for. This physical health is not for the sake of winning games. The playing of, his, of, of games, he doesn't address directly, um, but the playing of games, uh, I think we could, we, could we could put it in the same context as physical health. It's subordinate to something. It's itself is fostering physical health. But what's the point of physical health? The point of physical health is for us to be able to to struggle, to be industrious, right? He says on the same page uh, above on page 48, neither the attainment of athleticism nor unrivaled muscular strength should be the aim of exercise, but rather the building of bodily strength for the sake of ready satisfaction of the demands of the spirit and the fulfillment of those duties set upon it. For the demands of the spirit and the fulfillment of the duties, right, our duties, our obligations, the people around us. The aim of exercise is not to produce athletes for the games, but rather perfectly formed men capable of any undertaking. For it is well known that exercise by means of habit renders one more ready for struggles and more industrious through a familiarity with hard work. Service to the church, service the state service to the family, right? This is the point of, of physical fitness. Um, and of course that service is subordinated to higher things. We moderns are very much, um, have gotten out of the habit of thinking hierarchically. But the pre-moderns, including the Holy Fathers, and that's important, the, the Holy Fathers are our paradigms, not modern philosophers or scientists or politicians, um, the thought hierarchically, everything, it has its place in a, in a vertical hierarchy. Because we're so attached to the idea of equality, we flip the hierarchy on the side and everything's kind of floating. That's why we think that you know, religion and politics are, are a separation of church and state because we think they're equal, but actually they're hierarchically organized even the soul and the body. Human being is both body and soul, but the soul is higher than the body. Yeah, Maria just sent me a, a note here, Q&A. So let's, uh, I'm gonna stop there and let's do a Q&A.
uh, question and answer. Um, anyone that has a question could or a point they want to make or just say something, just raise your hand. Hello. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, okay. Um, you mentioned um, early in, in your um, class yeah. how you spoke about the Olympics yes. and when they began, which right. was around the time of St. Nectarius then, right? Right. Okay. So um, now they were competing, physical competition. Right. So um, what I'm trying to... I'm trying to make a point. Um, uh, so what was their purpose actually of beginning this competition with the Olympics? Because well, you know, the, yes. Um, you know, the Olympic games were um, originally in ancient Greece and um, they were every four years and they were connected to the cult of Zeus. Um, that's, that's why they're called Olympic. I mean, they were in Olympia, right? Uh, but also Zeus lives in the Mount Olympus. He is one of the Olympians, the father of the Olympians, so on and so forth. Um, there were many other games in ancient Greece, um, like the Isthmian games. And they were, basically the Greeks, whenever they had a religious festival, they, also, they always had some kind of, uh, they also had theatrical uh, productions and athletic games. And this is why the Olympic Games were canceled hundreds of years later by the Emperor Theodosius I, um, Theodosius the Great. To some, he's a saint. He is in the Synexarion. Um, and uh, the Emperor Theodosius canceled, well, he, well, he's the Great because he defeated the Arians, right? Um, he called the Second Ecumenical Council and just rule that whatever the second, second ecumenical council says it is the law of the roman empire and so the arians overnight were defeated um but on the other hand uh, in terms of uh, the, the olympic games he canceled the olympic games because he was a christian and he wanted to end the public manifestations of pagan religion um and so he canceled all these cultic games. Hundreds of years later, uh, Europeans uh, decided to um, reinvent the Olympic Games um, in order to, and I'm going to look up really quickly who the guy was that actually uh, thought of this. It wasn't a Greek. Um, in order to bring, bring back the Olympic spirit and what they thought of the Olympic spirit was. So it's a French guy named uh, Pierre de uh, Coubertin. Um, the idea was that, you know, back, back in antiquity when the Olympic Games were organized, all the Greek city-states would stop fighting wars. And so the idea was, well, maybe if we bring back this athletic contest every four years, we can bring about world peace somehow, or at least pause the wars. Um, and so the, this second, this revival of the Olympic Games started in the 1890s, and they picked Greece to be the place to, to start the Olympic Games in 1896. Um, and so the Olympic Games came to Greece, not because the Greeks, the modern Greeks, restarted them, but because there was a movement in, in Western Europe 
that that petitioned to have the game started in Greece, and the Greek government agreed. Um, now, uh, the modern Olympic Games are not cultic, or they, they weren't cultic initially, um, and they were supposed to be a celebration of amateur sportsmanship. Right? Professional athletes technically are not allowed to uh, compete, but, but many times they do. Um, now, at the beginning, I'm not, I don't think that anyone could have imagined what the Olympic Games have become. Massive international sporting events that have a dark underbelly, right? The, these, these international sporting events are huge human trafficking events, right? Uh, children, women are trafficked. Um, for to be exploited sexually, um, and so that's that's a important that happens uh, in, in the Olympic Games, and that's not the only reason why the Olympic Games are problematic. I think from an Orthodox point of view, I think the other reason the Olympic Games are problematic from an Orthodox point of view is is because there's it, they've been connected to this return to a pre-Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the 1890s, uh, you know, the Greeks were, um, were, were engaged in this idea that modern Greece is a, is a uh, reincarnation or a, not in the literal sense, but a revival rather of ancient Greece. Uh, and that was an important way the, the Greeks were able to convince other Europeans that they too were Europeans, so on and so forth. So there were political, cultural reasons. Um, but eventually, the Olympic Games have become sort of a, uh, a type of, of secular ritual that replaces the Christian rituals at the center of Christian civilization. Um, this is uh, very problematic. It's not the only one, and it's perhaps it's the most benign of all the other uh, replacements for Christian uh, you know, uh, uh, for Christian symbols and, and Christian institutions and uh, Christian unity. But it is, in fact, uh, part of that, nonetheless. Okay. But on the level of athleticism, uh, competition uh, in athletics um, is not necessarily, so there's another, there's another story connected with the same Nectarios. He was, a few years after this, he became the dean of the Rizarios Ecclesiastical Seminary. And um, some people decided to, I forget who it was, I have to look it up in his biography. They visited him and they found him watching the seminarians play soccer, which was a brand new sport at the time. And they asked him, why are you, why are these, these people going to become priests? Why are they engaging in soccer games? Uh, and if I remember correctly, what he said was, well, he, he, this is for patristic literature. He said, well, if you take a, an air, uh, a bow and you start bending it, and you keep bending it, and you keep bending it, and pulling it back and back, what's eventually going to happen? It's going to snap. Right? This is another scene in the lives of the Desert Fathers, where, again, the monks were not necessarily praying all the time. They were sitting, and they were just having conversation, and people came uh, from the city and they were scandalized. Why are the monks talking? Why are they being human beings? And they were hunters. 
And so one of the Holy Fathers, one of the Desert Fathers said, well, take your bow and start bending it. And they started bending it and bending it. And it almost, we can't do it anymore. It's going to break. So that's, and the, the, the Desert Father said, I forget, I forgot who that was. Um, well, that's the same thing with the monks. They, they, you know, they need, they need a break. They need a break, not to break. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the same thing, so St. Nectarius related that. He said, well, you know, they need a break. Uh, and so he wasn't against athletics, but they have to be in their place. And unfortunately, athletics have gotten out of their place. They've become an end in themselves, um, and they've also become a cult. Um, and uh, they've, they've replaced, in many cases, religion. They've also replaced loyalty to nation, duty to your city, duty to your community, duty to your family. Right? They've, they've replaced all that. Um, and, but it's, sports is inferior to all of that. And so it, it's con- contributed to the weakening of Christian society. This cult of sports, not the actual physical activity itself. Um, which, in fact, is actually a preparation for military service. Right? All, all the sports originated uh, as, as, you know, in, in antiquity, but also even some of the modern sports, which originated among native societies, um, was practice for war, for young men to be able to defend their city. So even there, it was subordinated to a higher purpose. But today we've taken it out of context and we've blown it up into something bigger and it's gotten out of control. And very expensive. And very expensive. And it's a tremendous sin, the amount of money that's spent on this that could be spent in different ways for higher purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, both on like the public level, but also on the individual level, the amount of money people, individual people spend on this stuff. It's incredible. Other questions? I I I have a little question to comment. I mean, sure. It's very difficult to find the mean and the median that a proper Christian should apply when you know going to a modern gym i mean in my city a lot of the gym culture was accelerated by the big weightlifters and by the homosexuals yeah because the homosexuals wanted to have all of the pool of men that they were looking at to be physically beautiful and it's not that they were doing anything with their strength i mean a lot of them don't have any laborious uh, jobs right but it's very difficult to frequent a gym and to um, to understand the balance. I mean, I think about the fasters and I say, well, why are they not heeding this advice? And I suppose that they have a whole different criteria that they need to follow, that they're not really a part of our context. I, I'm not sure if you agree with that, but. The fasters, you mean the monks? Like, yeah, like are they, are they, they're not a part of this context of who he's speaking to, I suppose. That this doesn't apply to them, right? Well, you know, the, the monks, what, what is the monk's life? The monk's life is prayer and labor. Ora et labora, according to St. Benedict. Right? Prayer and labor. Um, and actually, there are studies that have demonstrated that the monks of Mount Athos are collectively the healthiest population in Europe. Why? Because of the physical labor. Because of the terrain. 
physical labor in the particular terrain because it's rugged. You're constantly going up and down. I mean, if you live at Ayana, Ayana, I don't know how many stairs does it have? 2,000 steps to get to the top, maybe more. Um, and then the monks, when you get to the top, the monks, there's a, the first monk that I saw asked me, how many times did you stop? I said, four. Ah, he said, you're out of shape. Twice, that's all you're allowed. <laughs> um, or once, if you can. Um, so the point is that they, they have, they're constantly physically active, especially if they live in um, a synobium. But what's the point of physical strength? The St. Nectario says that the point of physical strength is to help us fulfill our obligations. What about the super weightlifters, the bodybuilders? Well, obviously, these men are deformed because human beings um, are, are not. And first of all, that's demonstrated by the fact that all the pictures everyone sees of, of them, they have to dehydrate themselves to actually look that way. The, the, the ripped muscles, right? That's not healthy. It's not natural um, to be that ripped, so to speak. That, that's a... That's an abuse of the body. Um, and a lot of these guys also abuse the body in a different way. They, especially those that use performance and enhancing drugs and um, steroids and so on and so forth, that those all have negative effects. Um, but also, we, you know, I guess the, the, the balancing point is what, you know, you, you exercise to a point after which the exercise actually starts to hurt your body. Right? Think about marathon runners. You could die from a marathon. Right? Um, okay, but if you're not in shape. But then there are people that are in shape. What does it take to get into shape for a marathon? It, essentially, it, it, it takes the shutdown of your body, of, of other bodily functions. The women, in other words, that, that for example, rather, um, that prepare for marathons, they, their entire their reproductive organs shut down. Um, as they're preparing, as they're running 26 miles every other day. That can't be healthy. Also, the, the, um, the amount of wear and tear on your joints, that can't be healthy. So at that point, um, when it starts to hurt your body, then this is where sin starts, and it becomes an obsession. Um, because after all, that's, that's one of the ways of defining sin, is what sin is, a, is an action that a militates against the, our nature, either the nature of our soul or the nature of our body, and B hurts our nature, either our soul or our body. That's where sin is. Um, it's all the activity that's against the way God made us. Um, so, um, and of course, on, on the point of homosexuals, it's important to be. Um, it, to, to be uh, vigilant and on guard because there have not been a few people that have been seduced in the context of gyms. Um, and that's true for men and women. It's true for men and women who work out together, right? It's become a joke, right? For the man who puts his ring away when he, walk, when he works out, that's a joke, but it's real. You have adultery or fornication. Um, 
and then you have you know homosexual relationships that could all also emerge from the, the demons are always working the, the 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 devil has many legs that's a that's a greek proverb right which means that he's got he's always working he's always doing something um and so that's that's that shows you that the culture in those gyms you have to be very careful um uh, to to not become part of that culture to become attached to it um any other questions or comments okay well if there aren't any more questions then we can uh convene for tonight and next week we'll be uh, continuing with St. Nectarius. We'll move on to his next chapter concerning Greek philosophy as a guide to Christian, as a guide leading to Christianity. Um, so that's an important uh, essay, and it it um, it's the second to the last essay. So I guess we have two more sessions next week and the week after. Um, so very good. Thank you, everyone.